Good morning. Good morning, Delaney. I guess that was just in case you guys didn't say good morning. Uh, my name is Dustin. If you don't know me, I'm on staff here at South Point. And just to explain to you what we are currently doing right now as a church, each week we open up the Bible, Scripture, God's Word, and we go into it. And what we're currently doing is for all of 2022, the entire calendar year, we are reading through the biblical book called Acts. And, and as we read through the book of Acts, uh, we've witnessed a lot of amazing things. And so just to recap, if you missed some of these, uh, what we've witnessed in the book of Acts is we've actually witnessed God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descending on the earth and actually dwelling inside of his people. And that's something that still happens today. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. We've also witnessed in the book of Acts believers proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. And we've seen uh, men and women by the thousands come to make the decision to follow Jesus through that message. We've witnessed miraculous healing after miraculous healing. We've witnessed persecution. We've witnessed the birth of the church that we are still a part of today. And so this morning we actually have a big chunk of scripture to read. It's going to be Acts chapter 5 starting at verse 12. If you want to get there, if you don't have an Acts journal, you can grab one out of the seat in front of you. If not, we'll have the words on the screen. But we have this big chunk of scripture that we're going to read this morning. And for me, this is exciting because I would much rather be reading than talking. I have less of a chance to mess anything up if it's just coming right from the Bible instead of from me. And actually, what we believe here at South Point is that the words of scripture are far more important than anything that I or any other leader might teach out of it. And so we believe that scriptures are God-breathed, that these words came directly from the creator of the universe. Not only did they come from him, but they're for you to paint a picture of who he is and what he's done for you. And I believe that through these scriptures, God has something for you today. And to me, that should be really exciting for each and every one of us. And so we're going to read through this. And a lot of this, I'm not going to commentate on. A lot of this, I'm going to let the scripture speak for itself, and so make sure you are honed in, make sure you're leaning in and hearing these words, because I'm only going to unpack a little bit of it. The rest of it, I trust that God and the power of the Holy Spirit, he can speak it right into your heart. So lean in, Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 12, says this. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, which is a section of the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, 
We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could, would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree on a cross. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up. It was someone who came in the past who said he was the Messiah. For Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, not that Judas, a different Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Don't miss this. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, in this origin series, we're actually in the middle of a mini-series that we're calling Threats. And during this series, we are actually looking at things that may be an obstacle to your faith, an obstacle to your pursuit of God. We're looking at things that might deter you or derail you in your faith. And so, a few weeks ago, we talked about the pressure and the desire, or the, not the pressure and the desire, we talked about the pressure put on us by society as believers, put on us to be quiet and hide our faith. The society puts this pressure on us to not talk about our faith. Jamie, last week, he talked about hypocrisy. And he talked about the way that we try to pass ourselves off as better than we actually are and talked about Jesus followers, an unwillingness to be vulnerable and honest. And this week, the threat that I want to talk to you about is actually something that each and every one of us has had to deal with in one way or another, and that threat is suffering. Suffering. You see, these apostles in Acts, 
Like they're living this life of faith. Like in the beginning of the passage, like things are going really good, like they're booming, right? The, the spreading of the gospel message and, and the church is growing by the thousands and this unprecedented generosity and Jesus' name is being preached and all these miraculous healings and then all of a sudden, wham, people are being arrested and people are being threatened and people are being beaten. And typically, this is how suffering presents itself in our lives, right? Unexpectedly. Sometimes even in moments when things seem to be going well, and in these moments when things are going well, next thing you know, you lose your job, you find out your spouse is cheating on you, a wave of depression or anxiety like grabs a hold of you and refuses to let go. You might fall off the wagon and addiction get the upper hand on you. Maybe you get a serious medical diagnosis. Maybe you lose someone close to you. You know, I don't have to talk about the, all the ways in which people suffer because you guys know. The thing is, we don't want to suffer. And we don't want to be uncomfortable. And we don't want to struggle. And we don't want to hurt. And so we try to avoid that the best we can. There are even churches that preach. There are churches that preach that suffering is something that you can avoid with enough faith and enough generosity. There are churches that preach this. Maybe you've heard from them. And they bend the words of Scripture to try to make Christians believe that God's plan for your life is for you to be happy and you to have money and you to never have any health issues and for all of your dreams and aspirations to come true. Like they preach this. And you know what verse they, they really love? And, and I might make some people angry, but we're just going to go ahead and get into it. One of the favorite passages used by these health and wealth, or name it and claim it, prosperity, false gospel churches, one of the verses they really love, and, and you may love it too. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I'm sure you've heard this. People read this. Or pastors take this and their messaging becomes that God's plan for your life is for you to be happy and for you to have money and for you to never have health issues and for your dreams and aspirations for your life to come true. They proclaim that this is God's plan for you. And then what happens? People get sick. People struggle financially. People struggle to find a purpose. Well, what happened? I thought God's plan for my life was for me to have all these things. And if that were true, if that were true, if God's plan for your life is for you to be happy and have money and never have any health issues and for all of your dreams and aspirations to come true, if that's his plan for your life, then the only logical conclusion that anyone could make about why you don't have these things is you. It's your fault. Your faith too weak. Your giving, not generous enough. Your effort, it's not sufficient. And if you want these things, you have to do better. Man, that's dangerous. And you see, that's how the Bible can be used to manipulate and hurt people. Because the truth is, you being happy and healthy and having money and all of your dreams coming true and, and never suffering, that's not what Jeremiah 29 11 is about. 
And so if, if you have the Jeremiah 29.11 bumper sticker or the t-shirt or the tattoo, <laughs> man, it may not mean what you think it means. But don't worry, we're going to get to what it means later. But this is how I know that Jeremiah 29.11 doesn't mean that God's plan for you is to have a cushy life. This is how I know. I'm going to use the Bible to explain this to you. In John 16.33, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says you will have tribulation, you will have struggles, you will have problems. It's not a matter of if, you will. 2 Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. So if you're trying to follow Jesus, if you're trying to live this life in pursuit of Jesus and having this relationship with him, you will be persecuted. You will face suffering. You will face scrutiny. People won't roll with you on this. You're going to face obstacles in your life. First Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering's going to happen. Don't be surprised. When the trial comes, it's inevitable. It's on the way. And so in this life, we will suffer. And so you might be saying, Dustin, this is the least encouraging message I've ever heard in my life. But I'm not going to lie. I refuse to lie to you. Life is hard, man, and stuff is going to go down. I mean, can you imagine these apostles getting arrested and threatened and like, beaten and as they're getting dragged out they're like but Jeremiah 29:11 said it's not realistic life is hard everyone knows that if you don't know that just wait it'll get harder and choosing to surrender your life to Jesus does not exempt you from that in some cases, surrendering your life to Jesus may actually make things more challenging for you. And so the question is not, will I suffer? You will. The question becomes, how do I respond to suffering? But honestly, before you can even really begin to wrestle with how you respond to suffering, you have to understand why suffering exists in the first place. And this is a huge recurring question in the world, is it not? Like, if God is good, how can suffering exist? If God is good, then why is there so much suffering? And the truth is, the suffering was never a part of God's original plan. God doesn't enjoy when you suffer. He takes no pleasure in your pain. That's not who he is. And pain and suffering were never a part of his original plan. In the beginning, when God created everything, everything was perfect and there was no suffering. And he created human beings and he said, I want you to rule over the plants and the animals and these things that I've created and I want you to be in community with me and things are going to be amazing and they're going to be perfect. Basically, this garden, this creation is a picture of both my power but it's a picture of my love for you. We can share it together. And things were perfect. But in that perfection, God gave people a choice. And he didn't force them to live out this perfect plan for their life. He didn't force them because I want to be loving, so he gave them a choice. And so in the middle of the garden, there's a tree, and God said, if you eat the fruit on this tree, you will die. 
like no mystery to it, no mincing words, no symbolism, like it just a, little, a literal, like things are amazing right now and you can eat fruit from any other tree and like we will stay in this place together and we can dwell together and you'll be in my presence and it'll be perfect. But if you eat from this tree, all of that goes away. And you would assume that was such a proposition that the people wouldn't eat the fruit, but nevertheless, the love of self, the love of self, which we share with them, the love of self was too much for the people, and so they ate from this tree. And the second they did, the second they ate from the tree, death and pain and suffering and sin entered into this perfect world, and it mangled it. And so maybe you look around at the world and you can get a sense that like something's off, like something's not quite right. Like you see the division and the hatred and the suffering and the sickness and disease and the selfishness and the pain and the death. And you, you probably look around at all this and think, man, things shouldn't be like this. And you're right. They shouldn't be. And they were never a part of God's plan in the first place. But because of our sin, because of our selfishness, creation, and humanity are broken. Now, the good news is the Bible declares that there's going to come a day when Jesus returns and restores everything back to the perfection that once existed. And there's going to be a new heaven, and there's going to be a new earth, and God is going to fill it. And all the people who believe in him, he's going to wipe away every tear from their eye. And all this mess and all the brokenness that causes so much suffering is going to go away. But... Until that day comes, we are in the thick of it and suffering is inevitable. And so how do you, as a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, how do you respond when things go off the rails? How do you respond when you experience suffering? Because make no mistake, don't fool yourself, suffering is a threat. And not, not just because it makes life uncomfortable or makes life hard, not just because suffering can be a threat to your physical life, Suffering is a threat because suffering can be extremely dangerous to your faith. Suffering can be extremely dangerous to your faith. How? Because suffering can make you think that God's not present. Suffering has this way of making us believe that God's not present. The devil, and I know we don't talk about the devil a lot, but the devil is real and the devil hates you because you were made in the image of the one who's going to destroy him. And the devil hates you because you are loved unconditionally by the one who is going to destroy him. And so the devil spends all of his time trying to pull your attention and your affection away from God and trying to get it anywhere else. In John chapter 10, Jesus says the thief, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And in moments of suffering, the devil will be in your ear. The devil, the enemy will try to use your suffering to isolate you. And maybe you've experienced this. You don't want to be around people. You don't want to be at church. You hear this voice, don't go to God. Don't go to other people. Like, they don't get you. They wouldn't understand. What if they find out about you? Or if you do approach other people, the enemy has a way of making you pessimistic or, or in pain or angry all the time, so you're lashing out at people, pushing them away from you, even though you, you want them around, you find yourself always pushing people away. You ever see people who, when they're suffering, they, they have to make sure everyone around them is suffering too? Like, I, I've been that person. 
The enemy is at the heart of that. He will use your suffering to try and destroy your relationships. He will use your suffering to try to drive a wedge between you and the people that you've loved. Maybe you've experienced this, man, I have. It is a threat. And in moments of suffering, the enemy will also try to destroy your hope and your faith. He will be in your ear telling you, see, God doesn't care. You see what you're going through? You see the circumstance? There's no way God loves you. You see all this pain and suffering? Man, there's no way that God's even real. I mean, isn't that one of the top reasons people don't believe in God? There's so much suffering in the world. And isn't that one of the reasons why so many believers walk away from God because they've experienced some kind of huge loss or hardship and in that suffering the enemy helps them conclude that God either isn't real or if he is real he must be some kind of tyrant if he's going to allow me to suffer like this. And so in moments of suffering you are vulnerable and the enemy is at work and those moments can be extremely dangerous and so knowing this knowing why suffering exists and knowing how the enemy wants to use your suffering against you how do I respond to suffering well the apostles in the Acts passage they model it on their way out from being beaten in verse 41 we'll read it again it says then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name did you catch it, the response to suffering? If not, don't worry, the Bible talks about it a lot. In James chapter 1, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, Count it joy when you suffer. And Romans says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Still not done. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, Peter says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Still not done. In 2 Corinthians Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content, I'm satisfied, I'm happy with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And so not only... How do we respond to suffering, but why do we respond that way? Because you've probably, if you've been in church any amount of time, heard that we've been called to rejoice when we suffer. Like, rejoice in suffering, be glad when you're suffering, like take suffering on the chin with a smile. Probably heard this, but I want to get down to the real why of that, because, you know, it kind of doesn't make sense on the surface. Like, how could we ever rejoice when we suffer? Look at someone who's suffering and tell them to be happy about it. See how they respond to you. So how can we rejoice when we suffer? How is that possible? Because the Bible says that God takes suffering and uses it for good. God takes one of the worst things this life has to offer and he finds a way to use it for good. How does he do that? Well, 
First and foremost, he took the suffering of his son and he used it to save the whole world. The suffering of Jesus, his suffering, paved the way for you and I to be forgiven for all of our past, present, and future transgressions. And it also allowed us to step into this life with God that is well. So good that it's hard to explain. And that came from Jesus' suffering. And so that's the biggest way that God uses suffering for good. But I know we're selfish and we need to know like, yeah, yeah, I've got that, I've heard that. But I need to know what God does with my suffering. How does God use my suffering for good? The situation that I'm going through, how does he want to use that for good? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, understand that your suffering will never be a waste. It'll never be for nothing. And people who don't believe, they they can't say this. People who don't follow Jesus, people who don't have faith when suffering happens, they kind of have to take it at face value. It is what it is. I I can't do anything about this. The universe, whatever, whatever they use for it. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have this promise that God takes suffering and uses it for good. So in your suffering, you can understand that God says, not only do I refuse to let your suffering be for no reason, but I'm actually going to take your suffering and use it to build you up. I'm going to take what the enemy wants to destroy you with, and instead I'm going to use it to build you up. How? How does God use our suffering to build us up? Well, even in these verses we just read, it's talked about. It's talked about. It says that God will use your suffering to produce steadfastness, endurance, and hope. Steadfastness, endurance, and hope. And I know in moments of suffering you see these words and it's like, Ooh, what can I really do with that? I want to unpack what this actually means and what this looks like. What it really means is that your suffering will make you stronger. Your suffering can make your faith stronger. You know, for those who trust in the Lord, your suffering can make you unwavering even. And it can make you unwavering because you will have the experience of God showing up in the storm like he always does. In your suffering, if you turn to him, you can have this experience of God showing up in the storm. And so you can understand that it's true. You know who fears storms the least? The person who's seen them the most. The person who's no stranger to them. You see, because they experienced it. They understand. And they can say from experience with confidence, man, I know things are bad right now, but trust me, I've seen it. Storms pass. And struggles pass. But God, God remains faithful. And God shows up. And God is good. And I've seen it over and over and over again, and so I know I'm going to see it now. He's never let me down. Yeah, it takes faith, but after you've watched God show up 10,000 times, man, it gets a lot easier to trust him. And that's not an exaggeration, by the way. That's steadfastness, endurance, and hope. I'm not moving And I'm not leaving because God has showed up for me every single time before and I know he's going to show up right now and so I'm not going anywhere because God is going to do something amazing with this and I don't want to miss it. Steadfastness, 
endurance, and hope. Consider this. Could you ever arrive at that kind of strength and trust in God if God has never carried you through some serious storms? How can you fully trust God if you've never seen him do what he says he's going to do? You tell me who is most likely to stick around when things fall apart. Who's most likely to stick around when things fall apart? The person who's never struggled and this is a brand new thing for them or the person who's not only struggled but has been saved by God more times than they can count. It's not going anywhere. God's on his way. Steadfastness, endurance, and hope means sticking around when things seem hopeless because those of us who have been delivered by Jesus understand that there is no such thing as hopeless anymore. But God, what if God doesn't deliver me? What if God doesn't save me? And there might be people in here thinking that. And if you're thinking that, like, what if God doesn't deliver me? What if God doesn't save me? What if God doesn't show up? Like, I want to, like, evaluate what do you mean when you think that? Like, when this goes to your head, what if God doesn't show up? Like, what do you mean by that? Like, if you're thinking that, do you mean, like, what if God doesn't bring me out of poverty? Like, what if I stay poor my entire life? Or, or what if God doesn't salvage my relationship? What if this relationship actually fully falls apart and it ends in divorce? Or, or what if God doesn't heal me or my mom or my child? Like, what if God doesn't? And I'm just curious, is that how you would classify God saving you? By him fixing your life right now? Can I... Uh, can I ask a really hard question if I promise that this is me being transparent more than it is me pointing a finger at you? What if your life not being fixed is the only thing keeping you tethered to God? What if your brokenness and your pain and your suffering are the only things that make you truly surrender to God? Like, have you considered that if you're poor, like if you're poor and you're on your knees asking God every night, like if you're poor and you're on your knees every night, like God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how this is going to work out. God, I need you to show up. I need you to be present. I need you to work this out. God, I need you. Have you considered that if that's your posture in life, that if you suddenly came into some money that you might not need or you might not have a reason to talk to him anymore? Have you considered that if you're sick, be it anxiety or addiction or cancer, any other disease, that if you're sick, that if you are falling into the arms of God consistently every night because you're just so broken and you're so beat up, if your posture is like, God, I cannot handle this, I cannot deal with this, God, I've tried this, this, and this, and nothing else works, God, and so I need to come to you, and I need you to deliver me, and I need you to carry me. Have you considered that if you were all at once healed from that, that maybe you'd stop falling into his arms because you didn't need to anymore? You see, I think that's where I'm at. Confession time. You know, I talked about this before. 
but, uh, but I have some pretty serious anxiety in my life. And, and you can, like, scoff at that or laugh at that. And, man, I understand that people are dealing with way more serious things, but, but the way this looks for me in my life is my anxiety makes me feel physically sick all the time. I don't really have panic attacks or anything like that, but my anxiety, like, attacks my body. And so uh, I have these spells of dizziness or, or vision problems or my heart racing or heart palpitations or like stomach aches or body aches or headaches or I overanalyze any single time my body feels a little bit off and it can send me down this spiral. And I know it's hard to explain, but it can be like really debilitating and make me not want to even get up in the morning. And for the past seven, almost eight years that this has been going on, I felt sick every single day of my life. And I have prayed for God to take this away. I prayed for God to deliver me miraculously from this. And listen, I believe that he can do it, and I've prayed for it. And to this point, he hasn't. It's still around. And I've often wondered why he hasn't healed me. But then I really looked at myself seriously, and you know what I realized about myself, if I'm being honest? When things are good, I am really bad at thinking about God, let alone spending time with him. And maybe you're thinking like, but you're a pastor. I know, right? Like I should be better at this, right? I tell myself that all the time. You should be better at this. But I'm not good at it, and I never have been. When things are good, I am really bad at thinking about God, let alone spending time with him. Something in me, I don't know what it is, something in me will try to go it alone if I have the chance to. Something in me is always trying to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining when things are good. But when things are bad, man, I run to God like he is the only safe space in the universe. And I run hard. You know why? Because when things are bad, Those are the truly clarifying and illuminating moments when I understand that God is the only safe space in the universe. What if my life not being fixed is the only thing keeping me tethered to God? Well, if that's the case, then my suffering just became the biggest blessing of my life. Because my suffering offers me the clearest picture of just how present and loving our Savior actually is. My suffering has presented me an opportunity to experience with utter amazement that God is as good as he says he is, and God will carry me when I cannot carry myself. Suffering has allowed me to witness that it is all true. It's true, baby. What a blessing. And so, if you're asking What if God doesn't fix these problems in my life? I'd like you to honestly consider the way that I have. Yeah, but what if he does? Where would you be? I don't know where I would be. I mean, let's take it to the worst case scenario. What if you die? What if you die? That's going to bring us back to Jeremiah 29, 11. If you've forgotten about it, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I want to unpack this, and I'm going to give you a little bit of context about this verse because context is everything when it comes to this verse to truly understand it. And so you're aware 
Jeremiah is actually from the Old Testament. And this is actually a letter. This is part of a letter that was written by a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote this letter and he sent it. He sent it off to this group of old Israelites, the oldest generation of Israelites that was currently displaced from their home and they were exiled in another nation. They'd been captured, they'd been taken captive, and all this group of Israelites wants to do, all they want, all they ask for is, God, let us come home. Like, God, will you please bring us home? And Jeremiah writes this letter to them. He writes this letter to these old Israelites, and he he lets them know, hey, good news, God will be bringing the people of Israel back home. But it's not going to be for 77 years. God will be bringing his people home, but it's not going to be for 77 years. Now, if you're one of the oldest generation of Israelites, you're counting and you're looking at your age and you're coming to the realization that, man, I'm not going to be around in 77 years. And then right after that is this verse. And so, you old Israelites, you're not getting back to Israel, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. How is it possible? How is it possible that God could be telling these specific Israelites, hey, you're not making it back home to Israel, while at the same time telling them, I have a plan for you? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because this passage isn't about fixing their current circumstances. And this passage isn't about fixing the circumstances of your life right now. This passage is actually pointing ahead to God's plan to save the entire world. Jesus. Jeremiah 29.11 is about Jesus. Now read this with me. I know the plans I have for you. Well, the plans that God has is that he's going to send his son in the flesh to die an undeserved death on a cross so that we can all be forgiven and have community with God both now and forever. God says, I have a plan to prosper you. It has nothing to do with being rich. God's plan to prosper you is because of what Jesus did on a cross. We can be showered with grace and love and mercy beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Man, that makes you rich. And how can God say he has a plan not to harm you? Well, his plan and the way he can promise no harm is that ultimately Jesus conquered death. He really conquered death. And he transformed it from something to be feared into something that honestly becomes explicitly beautiful beyond anything we could ever imagine. The Bible says... The eye hasn't seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. And so, what if you die? Well, if you die, thankfully you serve a Savior who took dying and turned it into this. This, this painting is called First Day in Heaven. And, uh, and when my mom passed away a year and a half ago from cancer, I found myself like enamored and amazed by this painting. Because it, it wasn't until I lost one of the most important people of my life 
that what Jesus accomplished on the cross actually began to resonate fully with me. And, and you know what I realized? I realized that one of the hardest days of my life simultaneously was the best day of hers. You see, Jesus took the worst things that this life has to offer. Death and suffering, he took the two worst things that this life has to offer and he made them two things that lead us directly into his arms if we'll trust him. Suffering in this life pushes us to a place of deeper trust and love and strength and hope in Jesus if we will turn to him. And death in this life lands us directly into his loving arms if we'll surrender to him. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to rejoice. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that I can trust you. I'm thankful that you've brought me through numerous storms and that you've showed up time and time again. You've never not shown up. You're always there. And God, I know that there are people in this room who are in the thick of it right now, who are really battling with some stuff and going through some hard times, God. And the idea of rejoicing is so far from their mind they can't even begin to comprehend it, God. But I, I know that you have a plan for their life and I know that you're going to do something good with it, God. I've seen it time and time again. You never fail. God, I pray that you plant some faith inside of our hearts. God, those of us who are struggling, those of us who are going to struggle at some point. And I pray that we trust that you actually do what you say you're going to do. You take suffering and use it for good. You take suffering to build us up. You take suffering to draw us closer to yourself. And what you've done with death is, I can't even put it into words, God. I pray that we are a community that trusts you completely when things are hard, that we draw close to you when things are good, we draw close to you, that the heart of what we do as a church is just to continually pursue after you because you are the one who makes all this possible. God. We love you so much and we thank you for everything you've done. You are greater than everything. We are so thankful to be loved by you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.